In the Gospel of Mark, and I would challenge you to, I would encourage you, urge you to take your Bible and go there with me because we will have no slides this morning. It's going to be an old school sermon. And so it will help you to have your Bible open in your lap. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. Just go to chapter 1, and I'll be more specific here in a moment. I love to hear the sound of the pages of Bibles turning. That's not a sound that you get when you're preaching to a camera, as we did for two months. Some people are still, some preachers still preaching just to the camera. But that is a glorious sound. Because it means that the congregation is engaged. It means we are hungry to learn from God's word. It means we want God to speak to us from his word. I hope that you found your way to the gospel of Mark. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry seems to rock along pretty smoothly for the first five chapters. Mark doesn't start where Matthew and Luke start. Mark hits the ground running with John the Baptist. That wild prophet who was out in the wilderness preaching and preparing the way for Jesus, the Christ. Scripture tells us he was clothed with camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he was uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Preparing the people to receive Jesus. Jesus himself goes out to the wilderness and submits to baptism from John. And when he does... When he comes up out of that water, we are told the spirit uh, or the spirit was descending on him like a dove and a voice boomed down from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. The voice of Father God. And if we fast forward to chapter five, we find three extraordinary miracles. A man is exercised of many demons and a hemorrhaging woman is healed. And a young girl is brought to life. Raised from the dead. And you know, sometimes in our lives, in our ministries, in our service to God, in church life, things seem to go well. Everything seems to be firing on all cylinders. There is smooth sailing. There is health. There is thriving. There is growth. But in Mark chapter 6, after for five chapters, things seem to have been going well. In Mark chapter 6, and this is where we're going to camp out this morning. In this chapter, Jesus' ministry seems to fall on some hard times. The first event of this chapter, we find Jesus heading back to his hometown. Not to Bethlehem where he was born, but to Nazareth where he grew up. And as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue, the Jewish place of learning, on the Sabbath, the day of rest. And he begins preaching. But the people recognize him. And they say, isn't this the son of the carpenter who grew up in our midst? Don't we know his family? Don't his brothers and sisters still live here? Where did he get this stuff? Who does he think he is speaking and preaching in this way? And they took offense at him. And Jesus says famously, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his own people. And he doesn't do many mighty works there. He doesn't stay for very long. He doesn't preach very much. He and his followers pick up and they move on to the next place. And he marvels because of their unbelief. Because of their lack of faith. 
So a disappointing, discouraging trip Jesus and his apostles take back to his own small town where he is shocked at the lack of faith. Well, then in the next few verses, we find Jesus sending out the 12 apostles that he has chosen to learn from him. He sends them out two by two, and we call this the limited commission. And this was sort of to prepare them for the ministry that they would be part of when Jesus would depart from them. And he tells them what to take, and he tells them what to expect, and he tells them what to do. They are to go preach, and they are to heal people, and they are to drive out demons. But he also prepares them for rejection. He says you should expect in some place, in some places, the people will not listen to you. And when they don't, you just need to shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next place. And then, in this chapter, we come to maybe the biggest blow to Jesus personally and to his ministry. We find the long account from verses 14 through 29, and I will not get into all the details of it, of the imprisonment and the gruesome murder of John the Baptist. The one who helped prepare the way, blaze the trail for the ministry of Jesus. John loses his life. Now Jesus and company could have been or could have easily been given over to despair and to sorrow. They have faced unbelief in Jesus' hometown. He sent out the apostles, and in some places they faced rejection. And then, maybe most significantly, they hear the news about the death of the prophet John the Baptist, with which the Gospel of Mark begins. It begins with the preaching and the ministry of John the Baptist. And I mentioned earlier, he had baptized Jesus, and that sort of inaugurated the ministry of Jesus. That sort of kicked things off. When Jesus submits to, to baptism from John the Baptist and John famously says, I'm, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. He feels unworthy. But not only had John baptized Jesus, many of you know they were blood relatives. Their mothers were kin, Mary and Elizabeth. And some of you are familiar with the story when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and she is pregnant with John. And when the baby knows that Mary, the one who is to bear the Christ child, is in their presence, Scripture tells us in the Gospel of Luke that John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb at the arrival of Mary, the mother of the Christ child. And so their link goes all the way back to their days in the womb. And John the Baptist's ministry is vital, as we know, in preparing hearts for Jesus. So this is devastating news. John the Baptist has been killed and killed, mind you, by the governing authorities, by the Jewish king, Herod. So hard times have befallen Jesus and his apostles, and it seems like they do take all this news pretty hard. Our reading comes after all of these events that we've just summarized in verse 30 of chapter 6, 
we find this. The apostles returned to Jesus from their mission. And they told him all that they had done and taught. And certainly they were able to do some meaningful ministry in places. But verse 31, we see, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And Jesus would often withdraw to commune with his father. But is it the case here that there's an added reason for withdrawing? Is it the case here that Jesus and the apostles are facing an extra dose, an extra helping of discouragement, of frustration? He says, you know what? After all that has happened in recent days, we need to get away. We need to withdraw. We need to go out to a desolate place and rest a while. But the second part of verse 31, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Verse 32. And Matthew's gospel tells us, when Jesus heard the news about John, that's when he said, we need to get away. Certainly, such news, because of the relationship, because of John's important role in the declaration of the gospel message, must have been a blow to Jesus. Hard times in the ministry of Christ. And it's not difficult, it, it really is quite easy to make the argument that Christian ministry today that the church's mission and activity today has fallen on hard times. And I'm not just talking about the virus, even though that certainly, as you, as you know, has thrown us all for a loop. I was shocked recently when I read some stats from the World Values Survey, the results of this question. What percentage of Americans say that God is not at all important in their lives? Not at all important. In 2006, the year before Lauren and I moved to Winchester, the number was 5%. Only 5% of Americans said God is not at all important in my life. In 2011, the year after we had our first child, that number rose to 11%. 11%. Of Americans said, God is not at all important in my life. In 2017, just two, three years back, that number had risen to 43% in this survey. Now, maybe that, you know, maybe the numbers are a little screwy and maybe it's off. Let's say it's off by 10 percentage points. Let's say it's actually 33%. Well, still, that is a remarkable, dramatic rise in a short amount of time from 11%. The 43% of Americans who say God is not at all important in my life. In the same survey, in surveys from 1999 to 2004, 57% of Americans said their religion was very important to them. A lot more than half. In surveys from 2017 to 2019, in the most recent years, only 38% of Americans said the same. So that's a drop. Of almost 20 percentage points in less than 20 years of people who say their religion is very important to them. In the same amount of time, the percentage of Americans who said religion is not at all important went from 5% to 17%. Religion is not at all important. From 1999 to 2004, 5% in recent years, 17%. 
of Americans said that. What is causing all this? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. And if this were a Bible class, this is when I would open up the floor. And we would discuss. Because you can observe culture as well as I can. And, and I'm sure we could come up with a, a huge list of reasons why we live in an increasingly secular culture. I don't exactly know. I'm sure there's not just one reason. I do know. I do know that idolatry in many forms is on the rise. People have chosen other things to worship. Sports has become an idol, as you well know. In recent weeks, we've worked ourselves up into a frenzy about whether or not there will be college football in the fall. And I saw one preacher share this recently. Canceling college football could prove to be a great opportunity for the church as millions of Americans will be looking for a new religion this fall. Now that's, I mean, he said that to be a little funny. But there's some truth in that. Is there not? In some corners of our society, have conspiracy theories become an idol to some people? In the deepest, darkest corners of the internet, there are people who seemingly, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, churn out ridiculous, outlandish conspiracy theories, blast them all across social media, and there are people who latch on to this kind of stuff with religious-like fervor. And even sometimes Christians fall prey to these unfounded conspiracy theories. Now listen, those of us who are to contend for the truth, we have no place Passing along unsubstantiated lies. But I find that some of these conspiracy theories, it's almost become like a religion. What about politics in our culture? Now, I'm not saying politics is not unimportant. Because politics affects policy in our country and policies affect people. And we should all care about living in a more fair and just and godly society. But I find that in this increasingly secular culture, politics has almost become like an idol. And the way that people engage in their politics, it, it seems as if they don't believe there's anything greater. They don't believe there's anything more to life than this. This is it. Let's duke it out because this is the end all be all of, of life, politics. We know that our possessions, many Americans... For them, their possessions, their stuff, their money, that's become what they worship. That's become their idol. Our leisure time, the way we spend our free time, what we do for fun, those vacations, that camper, that boat, that car, those trips, that for many people has become what they worship because that's what they spend their money on. That's what they spend their time on. I say all this to say, it seems that people have found other gods, lowercase g. They found other objects of worship. And I'm afraid that against such long odds, humanly speaking, that we as the church, as Christians today, 
have been just given over to despair, to sorrow. I'm not saying we've given up. Yes, we still serve, and we worship, and we do our best to obey, and we try to live for Jesus, but I'm afraid deep inside, we don't really expect that it's all going to make much of a difference among the people around us in our country, in our culture. I'm afraid we've resigned ourselves to small expectations. That we've just said to ourselves, you know what? It seems people have just moved on. And, and I can see where this train is, is heading. They are not interested. They don't want to hear what we have to say. They're not interested in adopting this way of life. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know that it's really going to make a difference. Now, how did Jesus and the apostles deal with the setbacks that they faced? When they go back to Nazareth and nobody wants to hear, when the twelve are sent out and they go to many towns where everybody rejects them, when John the Baptist, the very one who prepared the way for Jesus Christ, is beheaded, how are they going to respond? Well, we find out in verse 33. Jesus, as we read earlier, has said, come away. We need to get away. We need to withdraw to a solitary place. We need to rest a while. We need to commune with the Father. And so they go in, uh, away in the boat to a desolate place. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns. And they got there ahead of them. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And how did he feel? Was he disappointed? Was he like, oh man, I really needed a break. Not more people. Not more of this. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. And in the verses to come, 5,000 plus were miraculously fed by Jesus and the apostles. So how did they respond? How did they respond when the ministry fell on hard times? Jesus just kept teaching. He just kept serving. He just kept healing. He just kept at it. Because he knew, and his apostles knew, that God would make a way for the work to continue. No matter how long the odds were. No matter how great the obstacles were. God would make a way out of no way. If he had to, for the ministry of Jesus to carry on. In the near future, Jesus would be sent to the cross, stretched out on the cross by the very ones he came to save. By the ones he was sent to redeem. And then, even further in the future, all the apostles save one would be martyred for their faith. Eleven of twelve killed because of the faith and because of the message of Christ that they proclaimed. But not even this could slow the movement down. Because on the third day after Jesus was crucified. He came back to life. And every time one Christian was struck down because of what they believed. Ten more rose up to take their place. There was no stopping. The advance of the gospel. There was no stopping. 
the ministry of Jesus and the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. So how should we respond? When we face challenges, when we face challenges that are not as great as the ones that Jesus and company and the early church faced, when we deal with setbacks, here's what we do. We need to keep our head down. We need to put our hand to the plow. And we just need to keep going. We just need to keep serving. And we need to keep doing that because of our stubborn belief that God is going to make a way for His redemptive project to carry on. But listen, we're not going to see what that way is if we're too busy despairing. If we're too busy being sorrowful. If we've just assumed that none of this makes a difference. If we've just resigned ourselves to the fact that our ministries don't matter. We won't get to see the God-given opportunities that God has in store for us if we're just sort of moping around. What if Jesus had been moping around? After he was rejected in Nazareth, after his apostles were rejected in different places they went, after his relative, his forebearer, John the Baptist, was killed. If Jesus was despairing if he was moping around. He wouldn't have seen the crowd. The crowd that was hungry for good news. The crowd full of people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, who needed guidance, who needed to be healed, who needed to be fed. What kind of opportunities do we miss? Because we are not expectant. Because we don't believe that God really is going to do meaningful work through us. I'm just sort of tired of hearing people say, all sorts of people, those were the days. Those were the glory days. Those were the good old days. You know what I think? I think we need more people, more Christians, who say, these are the days. I'm alive today. I'm part of the church today. God is doing great work in His world today. God wants to work through me to advance His purposes today. These are the days. Today is the day of salvation. There are people who are hungry for the gospel right now. And listen. Maybe there are great obstacles. I believe there are great obstacles. And I can get down and out. And I can get discouraged. As I look around our world. And this sermon is as much for me as it is for you. But we never know what God is up to. We never know what He might be accomplishing through these difficult trying times. You never know when the next revival is on its way. You never know when the next great awakening is going to occur. And so that's why we've just got to keep at it. We just got to keep going. We just got to keep serving. We just got to keep being kind. We just got to keep doing good. We just got to keep preaching the gospel in word and deed. We can't stop. Even when we feel discouraged. Because God is going to make a way. He's going to make a way out of no way if he has to for his work to continue. 
And we must remember we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we are part of the church that can withstand even the powers of hell. And the church in some form or fashion will be here whenever Jesus decides to return. So we can serve with joy. We can serve with confidence. And we can serve with faithfulness. Because we know our God is with us. and He's going to make a way for his work to continue. And he wants to use us in that work. As the great theologian Denzel Washington recently wrote. When you're in a dark place. You tend to think you've been buried. Perhaps you've been planted. Perhaps you've been planted. Perhaps we've been planted, church. Perhaps God's got us right where He wants us. Perhaps He wants to use us in a unique way for such a time as this. Do you need prayers this morning that you would serve in a more faithful, fervent, more confident sort of way? I mean, have you just sort of given up? Have you just sort of been given over to despair? Maybe you need a shot in the arm. Maybe you need the kind of strength that only comes when you go before God and ask for it. And also when you go before your brothers and sisters and ask them for the encouragement. Ask them to lift you up as well. Or maybe we have someone here who hasn't been obedient to the gospel. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Do you know my Jesus? Do you know his love? Do you know the salvation and the forgiveness and the life that can come through saying yes to him, confessing his beautiful name, repenting of your sins, going down into that water and coming up a new creature? You can know him today. Would you? If you haven't become a part of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, would you do that right now as we stand and sing?